Welcome to another episode of the Scleroderma Education Podcast. Created by the Scleroderma Association of BC, this podcast aims to increase awareness and provide education for medical students and curious patients. Through this series, we hope to help our listeners gain a holistic understanding of scleroderma by learning from both patients and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Valerie Doyon. I'm a third-year UBC medical student and board member on the Scleroderma Association of BC. It is now my pleasure to introduce our two guests for this episode. Dr. Sarvi Musavi is a gastroenterologist specialized in GI motility. She founded the GI Motility Lab at St. Paul's Hospital and was one of our speakers at the SABC conference in 2019. Diagnosed in 1991, Diane McPhee is a patient living with scleroderma. Having been heavily involved with the SABC for nearly 30 years, she was recently selected for the Danda Scleroderma Community Service Award. Welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. So the gastrointestinal tract is the most frequently involved internal organ system in systemic sclerosis and can affect any region across the GI tract. Up to 70% of patients take medications that specifically address GI symptoms. Gastrointestinal disease tends to start in the mouth and the esophagus and over time progress down towards the anus. The most common issues are gastroesophageal dysmotility, GERD, gastroparesis, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, clonic dysmotility, and fecal incontinence. So those are a lot of things, but we will try to cover as many of these as possible today, and we will work from the top down. So Dr. Musavi, how does scleroderma lead to esophageal dysmotility? So as you mentioned, uh, the GI motility uh, is heavily impacted by scleroderma. And the longer the duration of the disease, the more likelihood that someone would suffer from GI symptoms associated with scleroderma. In order to better understand how scleroderma can result in esophageal dysmotility, one must understand the normal physiology and mechanism of esophageal function. So esophagus is essentially a tube that connects the mouth to the stomach, and it allows the passage of food through a series of wave-like contractions called esophageal peristalsis. In order to transfer the bolus from the mouth to the stomach, there are other mechanisms in place, including relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter, which is essentially a muscle tone at the bottom of the esophagus that prevents inappropriate reflux of gastric content into the esophagus. There is also saliva that is essentially acting like a lubricant that allows the passage of the food from the mouth into the stomach. So in someone with scleroderma, Oftentimes, many of these mechanisms are impacted. Um, Many patients suffer from dry eyes, dry mouth, which is associated Sjogren's with uh, with scleroderma. Um, In addition, more importantly, the esophageal function can be affected. So those wave-like contractions called esophageal peristalsis are often diminished. And in more severe cases, there would be no contraction. So that's referred to as absent contractility. Um, In addition, the lower esophageal sphincter can become quite weak, and sometimes there's literally no pressure when we do um, investigations to assess the function of the esophagus. So combinations of 
absent contractility in the body of the esophagus and the diminished esophageal um, basal pressure at the lower esophageal sphincter can result in difficulty with swallowing. So they're transferring the bolus along the length of the esophagus and also that barrier mechanisms at the bottom of the esophagus that kind of acted like a gateway in order to prevent the stomach content from coming back up into the esophagus is impaired. So many patients can actually suffer from gastroesophageal reflux symptoms as well as regurgitation, meaning that the content just spontaneously comes back up into the esophagus. Now, most of the time, if that were to happen in someone with normal esophageal function, then there are secondary contractions, kind of like housekeeping waves that come and clear the esophagus of any residual food or debris or whatever the case may be in the esophagus. But in someone with scleroderma, those secondary contractions are also lost. So as a result, whatever comes up to the esophagus can actually become stagnant or static in the esophagus. And that results in further sort of um, inflammatory reactions and potentially even fermentation of the food. And as a result, further um, contributes to reflux type symptoms. Right. Dan, can you describe in your own words your trouble swallowing food and food getting stuck down your throat? Um, I have several different things that go on. So when you look at the three or four categories we're talking about, I've got an intermix of it all. But what happens with me is uh, with the food, it's almost as if your esophagus has shrunk. And sometimes when you go, chicken's a really bad one for me. Um, uh, when you go to swallow it, you can feel it go right from the top all the way down, and then you're hoping it's going to get into the next level. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And then what doesn't make it through immediately, you're going to get sick. This afternoon, for an example, I was out with some friends, and uh, I had a cheese scone with um, some strawberry jam, and I got through one piece of it. And it was like, it felt like it was going down fine, but then the reflux hit and it was just like, okay, you're not eating any more of this because it's not going to stay down. And that's pretty much what happens. Mm -hmm. So I guess that there's the piece of food getting stuck down your throat, but there's also the reflux part, which comes along with the nausea. Is that right? Yes. I, I don't even call it nausea because it's so fast. Um, it's, I know immediately I have to quit eating. Um, what I do is I don't go anywhere without Gaviscon tablets. If I can feel any reflex come on, it, I do it. The liquid is better, but you can't necessarily take the liquid with you all the time. So I never go anywhere without my Gaviscon. Mm -hmm. Dr. Musavi, is there any other points that you want to drive home about esophageal dysmotility before we move on to the next point? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the those are all very valid points. And, and you know, the, the, the sort of the symptoms that Diane exp experiences is often what pretty much all scleroderma patients describe. Obviously, the severity of it would be um, different. Like some people have very hard time swallowing and even a small amount when it gets kind of stuck, like, you know, there is it, you're, 
it's not going anywhere. It's not going up. It's not going down. And even if you, for example, wash it with liquid, it's the same thing. The, the analogy I use is kind of like a, a, you know, a cylinder that the, it's not emptying itself. So there's only so much water or fluid you can pour yeah. in because if it's not emptying from the bottom, like things are slow, even downstream, for example, we didn't talk about gastroparesis yet or delayed gastric emptying. But if the downstream, if the stomach is not emptying properly, then your jug is full. So if you drink liquid, it's just going to come back up. So you know, I think it's really important to recognize that it is more complex than just the motility it's of the esophagus itself. Um, it's the whole GI system that could be involved. Um, and, in, you know, it, it's also the matter of texture modification, eating slowly, spacing out your bites, using gravity to your advantage, essentially to allow that bolus to get down into the stomach. Yeah. And so, as you mentioned, the motility disorder not only affects the esophagus, but it also affects the stomach. So I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about gastroparesis and how that clinically presents. Yeah, so gastroparesis means delayed gastric emptying. So normally, um, again, as soon as even you think about eating, your brain sends signals down to your esophagus, down to your stomach, essentially kind of primes the whole GI tract ready to receive food. Um, the stomach motility is very complex. Um, there are multiple areas in the stomach um, that has to adjust in, in order to be able to receive the food. The, the top part of the stomach or the gastric fundus um, acts kind of like a balloon. As soon as you, you think about eating, your, your stomach kind of distends and that's referred to as gastric accommodation. So this allows food, gas, as we swallow, we also swallow a little bit of air to essentially enter into the stomach. And then you have these pacemaker cells um, that kind of initiate a series of contractions um, into the, in the stomach that allows, again, the passage of um, food and liquid through the stomach from the very beginning down all the way down to the, the pylorus or the end of the stomach where it joins the small bowel. And then there's very complex kind of motility in the stomach in order to mix the food you eat um, with all sorts of, you know, gastric acids and juices and enzymes in order to initiate the digestion process. Um, obviously, it's not completed in the in the stomach, but it's completed as it go as the food transits through the small bowel and eventually gets absorbed into the small bowel. But that sort of um, mix, mixing um, uh, mechanism, which is referred to as tituration is actually a like a churning of the food in the stomach and eventually again these waves come and pass the the food particles as soon as it reaches a certain size uh, through the that channel the pyloric channel into the small bowel so it's very complex and essentially any of these mechanism could be impacted uh, by scleroderma so the way we um, see, see patients presenting often they present with sort of you know early satiety where they feel like they don't have as much appetite to eat or they're not necessarily finishing the same amount of food that they used to be able to do that previously. Um, uh, nausea, vomiting, um, you know, fullness, um, early uh, sort of postprandial bloating. And like, as soon as they eat, they feel like they're full, their stomach is distended. Like all of those symptoms could potentially suggest gastroparesis, although there are other functional GI disorders that can manifest with similar symptoms. Um, so there's there's often overlap with, with those symptoms with other etiologies that one should um, keep in mind, but that's generally how the patients present. And could you run us through the other things on your differential if, if that comes up with a patient with scleroderma? 
Yeah, so, you know, in patients who have kind of nausea, vomiting, early satiety, um, of course, you you have to rule out mechanical causes. So, you know, you want to make sure that there is no uh, malignancy or potentially downstream again, um, uh, pathologies, like whether it's a small bowel motility related issues or significant constipation or extra luminal, like outside of the GI tract, if there is adhesions or, you know, or tumors or, you know, all, all those mechanical causes should be taken into consideration. Sometimes metabolic causes as well. Like for example, if someone is diabetic, they don't have a very good control of their diabetes, or if they're on um, certain medications, like for example, opioids or uh, medications that have anticholinergic side effects um, that kind of like slowed down the the, the gut um, or constipating medications or some of the blood pressure medications can cause that. Uh, for example, electrolyte disturbances, like, you know, elevated calcium, um, a low magnesium level. And of course, like um, in general, uh, patients who are very cachectic, like if they lose a lot of muscle in general, because the GI tract is also made of muscles essentially. So they can get actually muscular atrophy of their GI system as well with severe malnutrition that itself can contribute to that. Um, and commonly, there, the, the, there's an often an overlap between gastroparesis and uh, something called functional dyspepsia, where essentially patients do get kind of epigastric or upper abdominal pain presenting with, again, um, bloating or early satiety. Um, that, that should also be um, taken into consideration as well. So the differential is really broad. Um, that's why the history and, of course, the relevant workup sometimes help us to essentially narrow that down. Okay, thank you. Dan, can you help illustrate for us your gastroparesis symptoms, such as early satiety? To start with, I lost over 40 pounds in the last year and a half. What happens with me or what happened to me until last October is if I put food in my mouth, even a food that I loved, it could be something that is like, nope, this is not going to work. And if either one of you have ever had um, a sour candy or something where your jaw bones just seem to go, that's what happens. I had a keg potato, a twice baked potato with a beautiful steak. I took one bite of the potato and it was like, nope, that's not going to work. But that would turn me right off. I could not eat beyond that point. Like I'm done. But in October of this last year, I woke up one morning and I thought, huh, I think I'm okay. Um, and I started introducing a few new foods or like old foods and I was getting them down. Right. So you'll have a few bites of a meal. And then if for whatever reason, your stomach doesn't like it and the food hasn't even gone to your stomach yet, it's just in your mouth. And now your whole meal is, is done. It's done. If you go out to lunch with the girls, you have to look at something that's not spicy. That's, that's very, you know, mushroom soup. Yay. I'll try that. <laughs> you know, because you just can't trust. And the saddest thing is, is to walk into a restaurant and the first thing you do is find where the bathrooms are because mm -hmm. you don't know. You just don't know whether it's, you're going to keep it down uh, one way or the other. I think um, this is interesting because, you know, what Diane describes doesn't necessarily fit into the typical symptoms of gastroparesis, right? So, you know, gastroparesis doesn't manifest in form of you putting the food in your mouth and immediately you feel like you're going to get sick. So that's not 
really typical symptoms of gastroparesis. Having said that, though, I think you brought up an interesting point that like somehow something changes, be it that's a taste or it's a reaction, you know, of your of your brain to a certain type of food that you feel like you're not going to be able to take that whatever you do. Um, So I don't know if this is something that is you know, it's relevant to to what Diane experiences, but there are some patients with functional GI disorders, meaning this sort of, again, the interactive brain gut disorders, um, where, you know, there's no structural abnormalities, let's say there is no gastroparesis, we don't have any explanation with respect to the motility uh, being affected to, to basically manifest these symptoms, because it's atypical that you put something in your mouth, they haven't even swallowed it, so it shouldn't really be the motility-related issues or structural-related issues, but you have these symptoms. But people do develop what we call avoidant or restrictive food eating disorders. Not that it is an eating disorder, but it's kind of like a behavioral, right? Whether you've had an experience beforehand, let's say, for example, you had salad and the salad got stuck and then, you know, you had to drink water, or you had to bring it back up because it wasn't going anywhere. Subconsciously, you might have that fear or, or worrisome that you're going to have these. And all these can essentially manifest in form of some of the symptoms that you describe and you feel like, okay, like, or sometimes even a change in the taste buds, like you put it in your mouth, you're like, nope, that's not happening, right? So the brain is a very powerful organ, right? So and then this connections between the brain and the gut, and then how it can affect your your behavior or your uh, perception of one thing can that can happen or the fear around it that can sometimes actually manifest in, in terms of these symptoms. So we do see that and sometimes it is overlooked at by by you know specialists or, or, or um, healthcare uh, providers not recognizing that this could in fact be something related to an underlying disease, even though there is no disease um, mechanisms necessarily contributing to these symptoms. So that's a fruit for thought. Yeah. So Diane was recently investigated for gastroparesis. And so she had what is considered the gold standard test, uh, which is gastric emptying scintigraphy. Um, So Diane, I was hoping that you could actually walk us through what that experience was like. It just happened, uh, I think, just over the weekend. Yeah, it was good. the test itself, if people get concerned, there's nothing to it. It was seven hours long. Initially, you have, I think it's three egg whites that I'm sure they do in a microwave because it was just like eating rubber and two pieces of toast that were dry with a spread of jam on them. And it took me 25 minutes and the poor tech kept coming in and saying, how's it going? It's fine. It's fine. It's just you have to eat so slow um, to keep everything where it belongs. And so then, because I hadn't had um, my Dexlent or my um, Domperidone, in, the reflux started in about an hour and a half later. And he'd say, how are you doing? I'm yeah, you know, I, I'm fine. Like, it just you want to grab the Gaviscon, you want to, and you can't, you can't take water, you can't take anything. But the test itself, you go in and um, you just have an x-ray. It's one minute long. And then you go back out and you um, wait an hour. And then you go back in and have a one minute x-ray and then you go back out. So they did five x-rays. We left at eight and we got home at seven. Or pardon me, got home at three. (laughs) So it's a long day. But, and basically it was five minutes worth of exams, but following the food down. But 
so worthwhile to have it done because it's just one more test that they can measure things. Thanks. Dr. Musavi, you've already spoken a lot about the non-pharmacological management for esophageal dysmotility and gastroparesis. So I was hoping that you could touch now on pharmacologic management for these. Sure. So um, just to highlight a little bit about the non-pharmacologic options about gastroparesis, I think that's important as well. Um, I think, you know, the the, um, goal is to eat small portions but frequently throughout the day. And in general, liquid is a lot easier to empty the stomach compared to solid. So anything that you can blenderize, essentially what you're doing, you kind of take responsibility of the, of the stomach, of that churning that I told you with this, you know, the bites um, getting really small, about one millimeter in size, so they can actually be passing through the stomach into the small bowel. Um, so, so if you can blenderize things, then obviously it's easier to, to keep it down and also to drink it and it allows the, the stomach to empty. Um, in general, you actually want to avoid high amount of fiber. So if someone tells you, oh, like, take tons of fiber, it's good for you. People who have gastroparesis, don't tolerate that and also high amount of you know fat anything that is too greasy or you know um, high amount of protein that's again it's probably not going to sit well so I often refer patients of mine with gastroparesis to a dietitian to essentially go over those um, changes with the diet but ensure that they are taking adequate calories both macro and micronutrients uh, requirements are also being met in terms of the Pharmacologic options for the esophageal motility, unfortunately, we don't really have any good pharmacologic agents that promotes esophageal motility. Um, There are some medications, of course, we can use for stomach motility or, or that promotes that gastric emptying. But again, they, for the esophagus, they don't work as well. Um, there are you know, agents um, such as domperidone or metoclopramide that works through, they, they work through the dopamine um, receptors on the stomach and promotes MTing. Again, um, the only agents that is really approved by FDA, which is in the United States for gastroparesis is actually metoclopramide. But when you look at the recommendation, it's only short-term use, so nothing beyond 12 weeks. And of course, you know, these etiology of, of scleroderma is not really reversible. So the gastroparesis is going to be a, a, a persistent issue. Um, and many patients are on these either domperidone or metoclopramide long-term. Uh, metoclopramide does cross the blood-brain barrier, so it can have some, um, you know, central nervous system and neurologic side effects. So I'm not a huge fan of it. So I meant usually limit the use of metoclopramide, but domperidone is something that um, could could be used. Again, it, it, it is technically short-term, but it doesn't have as much um, neurologic side effects. Um, you do require to get a baseline ECG just to make sure that people don't have any cardiac um, contraindications to use of these medication. Um, but in general, we use metoclopramide and domperidone uh, frequently for, for uh, gastroparesis. And it might help the, the esophageal motility. But again, this is just the, the studies and, and the evidence with it is quite uh, mixed and, and limited. Uh, with respect to motility, improving the motility in the esophagus in patients with, with scleroderma, their off-label use of medication uh, called Buspiron or Buspar, which is actually an anxiolytic. So it's medications given for anxiety. And it has shown maybe it improves <clears throat> some of these motility-related issues in the esophagus, specifically in patients with scleroderma. But again, the evidence is of low quality, mainly with case series, essentially just having a few patients with scleroderma 
and giving them this medication, assessing that. Um, other medications that have been used, um, there is there are medications called tegaserod or um, uh, uh, yeah tegaserod, which unfortunately has been discontinued because of its cardiac side effects, so it's no longer available um, for clinical use, um, but. In, instead of that medication, there is a medication that works through a different channel called serotonin um, channel that um, is called uh, Resitran or um, Resolor or Procalipri. It has three names, but essentially promotes motility pretty much along the entire GI tract. The actual indication for this medication is in the management of chronic constipation, but it has shown to be beneficial in patients with gastroparesis as well in a recent randomized control trial. So I often use that in patients um, who have both constipation and, and uh, gastroparesis because it helps with both and patients don't need to take, for example, two medications, like for example, domperidone for gastroparesis and then procalipride for constipation. So we can often use one medication for, for the purpose of both. Um, and then um, there are other medications that essentially kind of we use off-label if, you know, in more severe refractory cases, um, but sometimes patients may require non-pharmacologic options, but usually those are non, um, you know, basically more severe cases and non-responsive to usual medical therapy, but yeah, those are complex patients. All right. Thank you. So I'd like to go through a case now. So let's say a systemic sclerosis patient comes in with a couple months of many symptoms, including postprandial epigastric pain, regurgitation, heartburn, nausea. So what would be key points on your history and your physical to try to differentiate what could be going on? Yeah, so I think we covered a lot of essentially what I would ask from the patients, but, you know, I would take a detailed history um, with respect to the esophageal symptoms, you know, what do they mean by reflux? Like sometimes, you know, patients are referring to as regurgitation, like food just coming up as reflux. So I really want to understand whether this is more related to motility issues, or this is also a manifestation of heartburn and reflux and acid coming up and burning their esophagus. Um, do they have any difficulty with swallowing? And is this what we call oropharyngeal, meaning like people have difficulty with initiating swallowing, um, they're coughing and, you know, um, aspirating as they're swallowing, which more suggestive of um, oropharyngeal, kind of like the, the, you know, the, the pharyngeal involvement of the um, of their symptoms, or whether this is related to the esophagus itself. Um, and um, I would qualify in terms of how bad their dysphagia is. Is it daily? Is it with every meal, every bite? Is it to the point that they can't even get their saliva down? Are they spitting up quite often? Um, are they, is it difficulty with solid liquid um, or both? Is it progressively worsening? Are they losing weight? Um, and then in terms of reflux symptoms, how bad is it? Is it all throughout the day, even if they're standing straight or sitting up, um, or is it mostly when they're lying supine at bedtime? Um, or are they sleeping in an upright position, like in an incliner chair? Um, what are they exactly doing in order to alleviate these symptoms? Uh, what have they tried? What's worked for them? Weight loss, weight gain. Um, all those symptoms are very important when you're taking history around the esophageal manifestation. And in terms of sort of gastroparesis type symptoms, we talked about kind of nausea, vomiting, early satiety, 
Is there any evidence of stale vomitus, meaning like you're basically just vomiting food kind of partially digested or undigested that you ate, you know, five hours um, prior and it just looks exactly like what you ate. Um, like those are the things I want to know. And of course, as we said, like your GI tract is a continuum, like, is there anything downstream? Like, is there a significant constipation going on that kind of exacerbate these upper GI symptoms? And is, is there anything on the physical exam that you t- routinely check? Yeah, so the physical exam um, is helpful. Um, how um, sort of high yield it is, it's, it's sometimes, you know, it's limited. Of course, you want to do a full physical examination. Essentially, you do a head and neck exam. Um, of course, you look at the, the um, oropharyngeal, like is there any evidence of sort of teeth decay that suggests that they're getting a lot of reflux? Um, you know, is there any evidence of candida? Um, or oral thrush, because people with esophageal motility, they might actually have the candida in their in their esophagus as well. So that can also manifest in, in, in the mouth too. And of course, you know, any sort of peripheral signs associated with scoderma, if they have a lot of skin tightening or, you know, Raynaud's or, you know, depending on the, the severity and the duration of the disease, if they have a lot of these manifestations, of course, I'll be more, more suspicious of an underlying GI motility related issues. And then you do a full cardiovascular exam as well as an abdominal examination. You want to make sure that, you know, you don't find anything uh, mechanical, like no palpable mass. Of course, that that's rare, but you have to look for it. And, uh, and you just look to see if people are descended, like it, is there any visible distension in, in the, um, in the bowel, in the abdomen. And of, of course, the patients, if they're coming with constipation, it's also very important to do a digital rectal exam, just to make sure there's no mass or, or anything uh, mechanical that you would be able to assess on the physical exam. How do you differentiate esophageal dysmotility, gastroparesis, and Gurdon scleroderma? Yeah, I mean, it, that's very difficult to differentiate based on just symptoms. Um, so, you know, endoscopy sometimes helps you with assessing how severe the GERD is, but the GERD could well be in the context of severe underlying esophageal motility. So sometimes patients, you know, if they have stricture or or physical narrowing in the esophagus, of course, that can contribute to dysphagia, but they still could have underlying esophageal motility. It would be very hard to assess an esophageal motility related issues for as long as there is mechanical cause to their symptoms. So we often go after the mechanical cause because it's much easier to address that. And, and it's often, as Diane alluded, like if they, they go for esophageal dilation, a lot of times their symptoms improve. Um, I can probably fix that. I can do dilation, but I can't do a whole lot for an underlying esophageal motility related issues, apart from some of the medications that may improve or, or essentially dietary texture modification or the eating habit. So Right. And so in, in more of a primary care setting, is it reasonable for practitioners to do a trial of proton pump inhibitors? If Absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think for, especially for patients with scleroderma, because, you know, even the reflux itself can affect the motility of the esophagus, like excluding scleroderma for a second, um, in an all comer, let's say if they have severe reflux, that itself can definitely impact the normal function of the esophagus. So um, yes, it's important that of course, especially with the new onset of symptoms in someone who's, you know, older than the age of 
40, 45, where we more worried about potential malignancy, um, of course, those patients would certainly require an upper endoscopy, especially if they're presenting with difficulty with swallowing. But in someone who's younger, like in their 20s or 30s, uh, even if they have or they don't have scoderma, I, I always start with the trial of PPI and see whether that improves. But I, I do have a low threshold to, to do an upper endoscopy, especially with difficulty with swallowing. Like that's usually our, our first go-to assessment that yeah, that rules out the mechanical causes. Can you explain what the PPI is um, for laymen who really don't know what that is? So we're yeah, on the same so page? that's a, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a that's a very good question. So the PPI or a class of medications, PPI stands for proton pump inhibitors. So these are essentially the best medications we have at the moment to help with reflux, or I should say acid production in general. Okay. So we talked about the mechanism of reflux, like you, your stomach needs to produce acid in order to help with metabolism or, or digestions of, of food, right? So reflux is basically when this gastric content comes up to the esophagus and because it's acidic, it causes the damage to the lining of the esophagus, inflammation, and something called reflux esophagitis. So the proton pump inhibitors or the PPIs have proven to be superior to other medications we have otherwise in, in order to help in healing this reflux inflammation. Okay. They don't completely shut off acid production in your stomach. So a lot of people get worried as it, it because they think that, oh, I'm not going to digest my food if I go on these medications. That's it's not an all or none of event. Like it doesn't completely shut off the acid production, but it reduces the amount of acid. So whatever comes up into the esophagus is less acidic and therefore less corrosive. Um, they're they're very effective. So they start working. Um, pretty much like, you know, after a few days of you taking it. Um, generally, the proton pump inhibitors are pro-drugs. So meaning that you have to take it, it needs to be metabolized in the body for it to become active. So as a result, all PPIs, almost all of them with the exception of Dexalan, um, which is a long acting PPI, you have to take them half an hour before you eat. Uh, as, you know, a considerable meal. So like, you know, drink a glass of water or having a cup of tea doesn't count as a meal. Like you have to have something of a substance for this medication to get activated. Um, so, so once it's in, you know, half an hour before you eat, it's in your system, you start eating food and it essentially targets those proton pump channels in the stomach that pumps acid. So that's why you have to take it half an hour before you eat. So yeah, that, that's basically the best we have. Now there are other medications that may become available um, in acid suppression, especially in uh, that might be more effective in those patients who have sort of acid uh, or, or, or reflux, um, persistent reflux despite taking PPI. Thank you. So Dr. Musavi uh, mentioned Dexlent, and I know Diane, you're on that medication. So could you tell us kind of the, why you're on it and uh, what are the pros and cons of it? Because I'd never heard of this PPI uh, prior, you know, in medical school prior to this. Um, Dexalent is the end-all cure-all, uh, somebody that has severe reflux or I get up in the morning and I take my medications in the morning with my Dexalent and my, my hot drink um, and then I'm good for the day. 
the only problem with Dexlin is it's, it's not uh, BC approved. So you have to pay a lot for it where other provinces it's covered. So that's disappointing. But uh, um, given the druthers, it's, it's worth it. So I think that's a very good point you brought up uh, with respect to coverage. You know, the Dexalan, I call it the Mercedes-Benz of PPI. So, you know, in terms of the PPIs, there are different potency to the PPIs, even though more or less they're pretty much, they're all good, but some of them are more potent. And there are some PPIs that are dependent on certain enzymes to get metabolized in your body. So there are some patients who are rapid metabolizers of certain type of PPI, for example, pantoprazole. So when patients don't respond to one PPI, depending on what their symptoms are, if I feel like it's relevant to try another PPI, I often try another PPI that is a bit stronger than pantoprazole. So I often either try rabeprazole or um, esomeprazole or potentially dexalan. Um, the, I believe the company does provide a discount coupon. Now, how long it covers it, I'm not quite familiar with that, but that's something you could definitely explore with your family doctors or, or reach out to um, you know, the representative from the company and then see whether they would be able to give you a coupon because a lot of pharmacy actually do have these coupons, but sometimes uh, you need to ask for it to, to get coverage. But I think it covers around 75% of the cost of the medication. So it becomes kind of equivalent to other PPI, especially if you're taking the other ones twice a day. The Dexline is once a day dosing because it's a long acting PPI. So Dr. Musavi mentioned a little bit earlier that you can have that fermentation if food gets stuck at the bottom of the esophagus. And so even if you're on maximum PPIs, you can still get that GERD symptoms due to that fermentation. I was wondering if there's anything that we can do about that. Yeah, it, it's very tough. You know, sometimes, um, as I said, in like in severe sort of patients with absent contractility where they're just unable to meet their nutritional requirement or the uh, caloric requirement um, through oral intake, sometimes they may need to bypass the esophagus. I mean, they can probably continue to eat by mouth for the sake of the pleasure of eating, but for the nutritional support, they might require to to rely on sort of enteral nutrition with essentially they put a feeding tube in the stomach or, or extend it into the small bowel if indicated. Um, but in general, essentially um, sort of modifying that the pattern of eating, like eating, you know, small portions, um, really spacing out your bites, eating very slowly, um, you know, chasing it with fluid, essentially kind of like you're, you're using that fluid as a mechanism to kind of clear out the esophagus. Um, but if that, if that barrier mechanism with, you know, the lower esophagus, sphincter, I mentioned, become quite weak, or if people have hiatal hernia, where part of the stomach essentially kind of like slides up into the chest, like those mechanical barrier mechanisms are impaired. So there's unfortunately not a whole lot we can do about that. We can't do surgery where you reduce the hiatal hernia, because if we do that, then sometimes people get worsening difficulty with swallowing. So it's, it becomes a very challenging situation. Um, and in those patients, we do assess to see whether, you know, the sort of the benefit of having an enteral um, feeding route, such as a feeding tube would really outweighs its risk and its potential complication. There's something that patients can do uh, that can be very helpful for everyone. And that is some of us are on a lot of medications and maybe we're taking them in the wrong order. If you look at your medications, they will tell you whether they has to be taken at a meal or has to be taken at night or has to be taken in the morning. So adjust them to try to see whether there is 
a way that you can help yourself make those digest better. And I've done that over the years, um, uh, found, you know, when they've given me a, um, a generic when it should have been um, the real thing, but it has made a big difference for me to be able to just um, know I have to take these at night. I have to take these in the morning. The rest I can juggle um, to make your life a little easier. And I think a lot of patients don't look at that because um, it is it can be very easy for everybody to try that. Yeah, it's a good tip. Thank you. So now moving down the GI track, I'd like to talk a bit about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is something I had not heard about prior to this. So Dr. Musavi, how does this happen in scleroderma and how does it present? Yeah, so the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO is a very hot GI topic that's uh, the interest of of, um, much of research projects across the world, I should say. Um, There's a lot that we're learning uh, around the microbiome, essentially the bacterial flora that we have in our gut. And many GI and non-GI related diseases could actually manifest from the microbiome we have. And there seems to be a link with, you know, early childhood obesity or or diabetes or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, you name it. Um, So there are certain mechanisms, again, in place in order to prevent excess amount of bacterial um, growth in the small intestine. So small intestine is a relatively sterile environment, although you still can get certain number of bacteria and certain type of bacteria in your small intestine. But once the bacterial um, count, particularly in the, in the beginning of the small bowel, goes above t- 10 to the power of three colony forming unit, then you do have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now, there are, again, as I said, mechanisms that are in place in, in order to ensure that you don't have this excessive growth. And th- these are, again, housekeeping waves that come through the, the small bowel and essentially kind of sweep the small bowel, make sure there's no residual food left behind where these bacteria can feed on. And as a result, reduce the chance of um, developing SIBO. So in someone with scleroderma, again, these motility um, mechanisms are impacted. Um, So these waves that are referred to as MMC or migrating motor complexes that are present in in times of not eating. So uh, basically postprandially, once you're not eating until the next meal, you get various types of these waves come and clean the small bowel. So in someone with scleroderma, these are impacted. And as a result, it provides that environment where there's residual food and debris and and the bacteria can munch on and they get excess amount of of bacterial growth. And then the composition of these bacteria is also important, whether you have the more of the bad bacteria versus the good bacteria. That's also very important in terms of whether the patients would manifest a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth symptoms or not. So it's an epiphenomenon. It's not necessarily a diagnosis standing on its own. It's something that is impacting the motility of the small bowel and increasing the risk of developing SIBO. All right. So it's not something that we would go and do a test and then diagnose like most other diseases, kind of more of a a finding and it may or may not go with or be the result of um, colonic dysmotility and scleroderma. 
Well, there are definitely tests um, and it's related to the small bowel and uh, motility um, disorders. There are certainly tests we can do for SIBO that, you know, some, some of the tests that are based on breath tests. So essentially, you know, their um, patients ingest certain um, substances. It, it could be the uh, lactulose or glucose at a certain amount that they, they um, have. And then they basically collect their breath every 15 minutes, generally up to three hours after ingestion. And then we measure the amount of a hydrogen and methane gases that are produced in the expired ear, air um, that they have. And as a result, we would be able to um, calculate to see whether they do have any evidence suggestive of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. The quote unquote gold standard is, is actually aspirating the small bowel juice from the beginning of the um, beginning of the small bowel and culturing it to see how much bacteria, what composition there is. Obviously that test is not available readily in most centers um, across Canada. And to my knowledge, I don't think any Canadian center actually does that. In US, there are centers that do that and um, and diagnose patients with small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. So yes, there are definitely tests we can do, um, but you know, as I said, it's not a, um, a a it is an epiphenomenon. So it is something that increases the likelihood of an individual developing small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. Now, would you give uh, a patient an antibiotic to see whether it could correct itself? Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, I would love to get these breath tests, the, the lactulose and the glucose breath tests, as I mentioned, um, as long as they're done properly, because there are some, um, you know, labs, or, or I should say, you know, with naturopaths or alternative medicine that they offer these uh, breath testing, but whether they do it properly, according to the consensus guideline that was published, I believe in 2016 or not, that that I don't believe that's the case. So, you know, sometimes if I feel like I have a high index of suspicion, then I, you know, particularly in patients with something that causes GI motility related issues, I would have a lower threshold to potentially try antibiotics. Um, so we do have non-absorbable antibiotic called rifaxin or zyfaxin, and then we can consider doing a course of it. But again, we don't have any objective way of measuring before and after, like, are you improving? Because, you know, there is that SIBO component that we potentially treat it temporarily because we're not again make, fixing an underlying motility related issues which is present in, in scleroderma so sometimes patients may need cyclical antibiotic use so in those you know particularly in this circumstance I would love to have something that I could objectively measure whether you do have SIBO and whether your symptoms improvement is because of the antibiotics and if their symptoms come back, is it because of recurrent SIBO or is it because of an underlying motility issues? Because there's often overlap between the symptoms of SIBO and other um, sort of GI motility issues. So it, it becomes very challenging, the, the particularly the, the diagnosis and management of SIBO in BC because these breath testings are not available. We can't do the aspirates of the small bowel. But yes, totally antibiotic. I think it's the non-absorbable one, for particularly with serifaxamin, because it doesn't get systemically absorbed, doesn't have as much systemic side effects. I think it's a very reasonable option to try. Thank you. Diane, could you please share with us your troubles with diarrhea and incontinence, however much you're comfortable sharing? Um, as a patient, you have to be patient smart and look at different things that you're doing yourself. Um, if you, for an example, if you have too much fat first thing in the morning, it's just going to trigger your body and you're going to have diarrhea. Uh, because of COVID, 
most of us have been locked in for two years. So as Val asked me one day, what is it like? And I thought, hmm, you know, I'm home now. So you're not having that same thing where your husband has to go out for bacon and eggs and whatever for breakfast. And then you're going, I need a bathroom now, not right now, but now. And because you have no control over it. And that's the hardest part. And that's why a lot of patients um, end up staying home too much because they are afraid of that um, happening. Like you have no control, none whatsoever. I've been caught uh, three or four times over a period of maybe 10 years. Uh, You're in a store and you're going, where is the washroom? It's just too far away. And there, and, and it's like a flushing, if, if you can understand that when you flush the toilet, this is, well, that's what happens to your body. It just literally empties. And, um, and I think that is a more common thing than, than uh, we don't discuss these things. So this is why it's hard, um, but they're real. They're, they're very real. And so when Val mentioned that to me, I thought, well, I better check this out. Um, so I had my, my special hot, almost straight water decaffeinated coffee in the morning. And then about an hour later, I would have to go to the washroom, which is fine. And you just don't think about it. But that was the same thing that was happening when I was out. What you would do at home would be completely different than what you're doing out there because you're having to wait to get to a washroom. And when you're system is not elasticity is not working as well as it once did it can be very difficult that sounds awful having what you're describing as fecal incontinence just in the public that's super embarrassing and i would also stay home if i had that well i'm also on oxygen now so i didn't think i'd be going out with that either so Mm -hmm. um, you learn to overcome these things you have to learn to overcome them and you just have to be smart about uh where you go, when you go, and have you eaten or haven't you eaten? And, and um, you know, yeah, you're going to get caught short sometimes, but on a whole, you can, you can usually regulate what your body is going to do on a normal basis. Dr. Musavi, if, if a scleroderma patient presents with diarrhea, how would you work this up? Since there's so many different causes of diarrhea. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think, you know, it's always the history is is very important. Um, there are lots of elements that I would take into consideration when obviously taking history around the diarrhea. Um, you know, you know the pattern of the bowel movements. What is normal to them, and what has been the change? Um, you know, the frequency is what they're referring to diarrhea. Is it because of the urgency? Is it the 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 frequency? Is it the consistency of the stool? Um, sometimes having sort of, you know, schematic um, drawings to, to show patients where so that you know what they're talking about is exactly what you have in mind. I usually use the Bristol stool classification. So that's often very helpful for both myself and the patients and also whoever is reading my notes because, you know, it's an objective way of, of quantifying and characterizing the stool. And, and as Diane mentioned, um, like urgency, like, is there anything sort of urgent about it? Um, and you know, often 
in correlation with eating, like, you know, as you, as I mentioned, like, you know, an hour later, like you have to go to the washroom. Um, or if, for example, if you don't eat, then you don't get as much diarrhea. Um, or is this completely irrelevant of whether you eat or not? Is there any associated symptoms with it, like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, bloating, and all those things are important to, to keep in mind. And then also, I always ask questions around, uh, around continence, because patients, uh, as Diane mentioned, they probably feel embarrassed, or they don't feel comfortable disclosing that by themselves. So un unless you ask about it, sometimes patients don't don't mention it. Um, so it is important to know to what extent those symptoms affect patients quality of life, because, as you know, sometimes people give up jobs or, or, or impact their productivity or the quality of life. And yes, I may not be able to completely fix everything, but there might be things that the patient hasn't explored in terms of an option. And we might be able to, to try and at least improve the quality of life so they can leave their house or, you know, they can return to work or, or their, their leisure activities that they give up because they can't do. Um, and of course, in terms of investigation, you know, I often check for celiac um, if there is any history of travel uh, or sick contact, of course, dual infectious workup. If there has been recent antibiotic use, then I check for C. diff. Um, and often colonoscopy, we may need to do uh, a colonoscopy, colonoscopy to make sure there's no inflammatory bowel disease um, in, you know, um, particularly female, but patients in general between the age 40 to 60, then there might be um, association with microscopic colitis, especially if they're on medications that it can increase the risk. So you take random biopsies for that as well. Um, so these are, and potentially sometimes, you know, pancreatic enzymatic insufficiency. So sometimes people get steatorrhea where they get kind of like fat um, droplets or, or, or floating stool and, you know, um, inability to tolerate high amount of fat. So that can also be seen in, in patients with scleroderma. And then surgical history, like did they have cholecystectomy? They have, they don't have a gallbladder. So as a result, they get bile acid diarrhea. And there, there are ways that we can test for it. There is nuclear medicine called CCAT test, or you can empirically treat with bile acid sequestrant. So these are medications that reduce the amount of bile acid that gets to the colon, which can cause diarrhea. And then you talking about zebras out there, which are basically secretory type diarrhea, and, and the list is quite long. So it is it is complex in terms of obviously things that can contribute to it. And I didn't mention obviously medications and diet, particularly like if they're having a lot of caffeine or high amount of fermented food, you know, all those things I obviously take that into my history and, and um, consideration for workup. Okay, another big differential. <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And so what is the role of diet in the various GI conditions that we've discussed today? I think diet plays a huge role. Um, sometimes we don't recognize or we may not necessarily spend enough time to inquire about sort of dietary intake. And that's why having a, a registered dietitian, so someone who has appropriate training in, um, you know, assessing patients with functional GI disorders or GI motility related issues um, and then the impact of diet on that is very, very important. Um, so access to dietitians is unfortunately very limited and many times is not covered by MSB, uh, but it plays a huge role in a multidisciplinary approach that uh, patients with 
scleroderma or, or functional GI disorders uh, required to have. So I often try to take a little bit of time to, to get a little bit of a dietary history around that, but I often um, get a dietitian involved. Um, so I think it's, it's very, very important to, to take that into history and of course, into your management as well. Great. Thank you. Is there any other points that either of you feel like we haven't had a chance to really drive home yet before we wrap up? I have a point. Um, when you get diagnosed with scleroderma, it's, you, they take very good care of your lungs and your heart, um, but they don't necessarily take really good care of your gastric problems because to lung specialists and heart specialists, that's a secondary. To scleroderma patients, 75% of us have these issues. So they're very, very important. And mm -hmm. it should be part of the workup so that um, people can get an opportunity to get into a gastroenterologist. But even then, if they don't have an understanding of the complexity of scleroderma, it's not enough. So that would be my thing is I believe that when a patient is diagnosed, there's a three-part or a four-part that should be done so a patient has an understanding of their well-being and how they can, they can themselves help everybody with their diagnosis. I think that's a remarkable point, and I cannot agree with you more. I think the reason um, your, your clinicians would be um, taking care of your lungs and your heart is that of course, that's probably going to affect your longevity if they don't take care of it, right? Whereas one can think that, well, you know, your GI system isn't going to kill you. Of course, it's going to impact the quality of your life. But unfortunately, sometimes we forget about that, that, you know, the quality of your life that you're living with all these GI symptoms is hugely impacted. So we sometimes forget about that or we overlook that. Um, and I totally agree with you that I think the clinicians should, um, should increase awareness around the GI manifestation of scleroderma and in general connective tissue disorders. And there is definitely room for improvement to increase, um, you know, knowledge and uh, have informative sessions even for, you know, for clinicians to, to, um, to spread the words and, and um, highlight the importance of this impact on the quality of life that sometimes we may overlook at just because it doesn't necessarily impact your longevity doesn't mean that it, it doesn't impact you. If anything, it's probably more impactful, as you said. Definitely. Thank you so much, guys, both of you. Uh, we're going to wrap up here. Um, yeah, thanks for taking part and just sharing your professional and lived experience with the GI manifestations of scleroderma. I, I think hearing firsthand stories from patients is so helpful for, for my learning as well as my colleagues learning, just because it helps us build these illness scripts to, to try to develop pattern recognition of how different diseases kind of present. And I feel like learning from patients is the very best. So thank you so much, Diane, for coming on and, and just you know, describing all these symptoms that greatly affect your quality of life. And Dr. Musavi, thank you again so much for all of your expertise on this. You're, yeah, it's so helpful. Thank you, Val, for putting it together. Thank you. Yes, this was great. And hopefully it will be helpful for your colleagues and you know, patients and yeah, and my colleagues, hopefully. <laughs> totally. 
Please know that the opinions expressed in the Scleroderma Education Podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare provider if you have any concerns about your health.